Hello and welcome to Unsourcewall. My name is Elvis and as always, I'm your host. Okay, so let's get on right into it. It's going to be a really packed review session. I think that the review section is going to be as long as a regular episode has been. So hopefully I can balance that out with the news stuff because it's going to be a little rough. Let's start off with some movie news and with something actually important. Probably the biggest upset of the week because Jai Courtney is back as Captain Boomerang in Suicide Squad 2, which I think settles the question of whether or not this is a reboot. It's probably a soft reboot and I am really glad that they kept Courtney around. He was one of the real inherent highlights of the first movie despite him not doing much at all. Hell, he never even really threw a boomerang except maybe once in a flashback. My excitement is tempered by the undeniable fact that he's probably only coming back to be killed off to show that the sequel means business. There's not much else that they can really want from him but the fringe possibility that there might be a come a little bit closer type scene with him throwing boomerangs left and right is just too tempting. So I am really wishing for the best. Next up we had the first poster for the upcoming Adams Family movie with the trailer set to release in about two weeks. It's an okay poster and the design seemed to be a mixture of the original comic strips and gags and the old cartoon. I was never a fan of that look for them but it's still portrayed faithfully enough and the voice cast including Oscar Isaac as Gomez is still pretty excellent. I'll hold off from firmer judgment until the trailer actually drops. But let's move on to some quick shots. First we have Angelina Jolie joining the Eternals movie in a lead role, whatever that means. Simon Kinberg is saying that Disney is still mulling over whether or not to pull the plug on the Gambit movie, which I think is just giving Channing Tatum some false hope. It's just cruel to keep him around with this carrot on a stick called Gambit movie, alright? Sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind with people like that. And also, the supernatural noir comic Bitterroot is being adapted to a live action film by Legendary Pictures. So all in all, best of luck to them. Lastly in movie news, I would be remiss not to mention the hubbub surrounding Zack Snyder's Q&A screenings of some of his more famous films, where he made some very divisive claims about his plans for the DCEU. Like how he once thought up the idea that Martha Wayne and Kent should be the same person, and clarified that the nightmare timeline was caused by Lois dying, and that JL 1 and 2 would have been about stopping her death using time travel. But the thing that got the most traction was possibly the most misread by and I'm not defending the tone or anything really about it. But can anyone else see that he's really being misquoted? Snyder's statements concerned his irritation about people losing their virginity to his film and how they would still go up to him afterward and complain that Batman doesn't kill. Rebutting that they should just wake the fuck up from their dreamland. Now those are inflammatory statements. No lie, he was really needlessly aggressive. But the way I read it was along the lines that he was annoyed that people would watch BVS and still only walk away with the singular opinion that Batman wouldn't kill no matter what. Despite BVS being about why Batman would kill and explaining it pretty okayishly. And I can get that. I can get why he would be really really bummed out and honestly kind of mad about that. Still, the way he worded it led to a huge meme for the week and it was pretty damn funny. So neither here nor there. Moving on to TV news, we had the first full promo pick for Stargirl and updated scheduling for the DC Universe original content blocks. Now the promo pick mainly focuses on Stargirl in a pretty accurate costume, but kind of looking too exacting. It doesn't have that unique or homespun nature that made the original design pop. But for a refined version of the suit, 
It's probably the best it's looked in the two or three times it's been on a live action show. The pick also showcases Stripe. Not that anyone actually noticed because he is fucking huge. He's barely in the pick because only his leg fits into the frame. His leg is as tall as Courtney herself. It's amazing. Like, holy shit. Pat went all out. Hope this doesn't mean that Sylvester isn't okay though because clearly Pat is trying to make up for something. We also have some confirmation that the redheaded actor from a previous casting announcement will be playing Wally West as Kit Flash. Dashing my per Degaton hopes. At least for now. Stargirl will be premiering early next year. Titans season 2 in the fall and Swamp Thing at the end of May. And I really can't wait for these. I really can't. For some quick shots, we had the first teaser to the upcoming Alfred prequel set in the 1920s. It's only about 10 seconds long, shows a few action shots, but it's seemingly much in the style and visual aesthetic of Gotham. I'm still not interested, but that does give me some slight hope. We also have a promo poster for Gotham series finale, which is a back shot of the full Batman suit. A version of which has already leaked online, with claims that it is a secondary suit used for action and stunts. Really excited to see how it all ends up. Lastly, we head into comic news, and there's not much really there. Just that Hickman is apparently working on an X-Men series for his return to Marvel, which is neat, but will it ever really be a classic story unless the X-Men go back in time to make sure a villain of theirs is never born? I mean, kind of makes a think. Also, Cates and Stigman have started to make a rivalry for their upcoming Absolute Carnage event with Jim Lee's X-Men number one. They want to break the record that made. I salute them. Hopefully they can get Lee to make a variant cover the same way Gibbons eventually did. Finally, we head on into what I read this week. First things first, it's Dial H for Hero number one. I was actually kind of looking forward to this. I know Humphreys has had this very notorious career, but Green Lanterns gave him a lot of goodwill for me. And going back to the Dial H well, and given how much I love the New 52 run, which was this very tense, dramatic, and emboldening story about a middle-aged slub who was thrust into character development, like all good stories really, but then taking it back to basics by making it center around some kids again, that sounded like it could be a lot of fun. And it's a gamble that worked out. The story by Humphreys and art by Quinones is incredibly youthful. It's charged, it's humorous, and it's got this bountiful energy, playfulness, and exuberance throughout the entirety of it. It's this devil may care, carefree attitude. It's kind of the exact opposite of the New 52 run, but it has the same amount of enthusiasm for its concept and the wild, wacky, and charming world of the dial. Miguel and Summer are a fun duo. Their attitudes contrast perfectly, and it doesn't shy away or go for low blows when portraying the dial's power. Bold art, bold characters, and hearty moments all around. It's just a cool looking book and it has the skills to back it up. I'm kind of sorry that it's only a six issue mini, but they've already said that they're planning for more seasons. I like Wonder Twins, but first impressions, this is something I want more of. As much as they got, two thumbs up. Next up, we have Freedom Fighters number 4. I don't think I'm going to have any love for this series. I think this might be the last issue of it I review. Most of this is coming from the fact that this series is no longer a disjointed, cluttered piece of mess. The remnants of Multiversity's Masterman are finally gone. Unfortunately, all that's left is a boring blob of nothing. It's just a blunt, uninteresting story featuring the Freedom Fighters without any actual context or content or character engagement. There's nothing substantial to it. It could work, like I have nothing against blunt heroic patriotic stories, but this series has no interest in leading into that at all. Instead, the entirety of the markets decide to make is just gore. 
Like there's really nothing else to it. Just overbearing and annoying set pieces that have no meaning, no pathos, or anything to ground the characters or conflict. Hell, way too much time is spent on this aggravating Hitler the Third villain who is just so irritating and uninteresting. It's, it's flat. It's boring schlock. Two thumbs down. Moving on to Martian Manhunter number 4. This is just a good issue. Maybe it's not as impressive or as groundbreaking as the previous three, because holy shit, those three issues were a hell of a run of issues. But it's still pretty damn good. A bit slower, letting the story breathe, but allows for as much inner development for John as anything else Orlando has been doing. There's this one beautiful page where John is meditating his decisions with himself in the bathroom mirror about who what really feels like he should be. It's a wonderful beat and sentiment. Kind of heartbreaking to be sure, but you really feel a connection with John that Orlando is skillfully trying to craft. Because this series is goddamn crafted, we get some fantastically constructed pages by Rosmo, and it makes even a slower issue feel so varied and full of depth and complexity. It's such a great series, and I love it. I mean, my main worry is running out of good things to say about it, because that's a real danger for this. Still, if Orlando and Rosmo can pull out another Martian sex scene and make it work and still be so vivid and character-based, that's inspirational. We're like a third finish with this series, and I have more confidence with it than ever. Two thumbs up. Next up, we have Shazam number four. And I'm going to get this out of the way right now. I know I have a review of the movie coming up right after this section, but this needs to be said right now. This book is 100% synergy, and I fucking hate synergy bullshit. I hate Johns for doing this, because I really want to like this book. I think that there are moments of it that are fun, that are light, and that are reasonably not shying away from mistakes, or little aspects of it that are still enduringly simple, but time-tested narrative cliches that hold together because they are so practiced. I mean... This issue reintroduces the classic version of Taki Tawny, and he's amazing. It's such a blast, and Johns writes him pretty damn perfectly. Just that polite, somewhat nebbish, but also adamant characterization. The kids also have a lot of potential, and some even exceed the kind of bland magic lands they're put into. And the stuff going on back home in the real world might actually be clever or dramatic given where Johns might take it. But still, synergy bullshit. By seeing the movie, it reveals more than it already did how much Johns has dipped, dropped, and retconned to fit more in line with that movie. And he had time. He had all this time to make it work. And that's what makes it sting so much more. I'll get more into why with the review, but out of principle, two thumbs down. And even otherwise, it would have only been two thumbs middle. Moving ahead with GoBots number five. I can't believe this mini is over. I feel a bit at a loss without it, really. It's only been five issues. And it certainly wasn't perfect, but I can say without any worries that it's going to go down as one of my favorite comics of all time. It's just such a potent and impacting read. Taking liberally from the entire Planet of the Apes franchise, Rossum's universal robots, and classic Greek tragic structure of all things, to create such a somber and sobering read. Full of emotion, pathos, and camp. It's such a wild and deeply engaging ride, all the way to the end. I was honestly kind of depressed after reading this in full, and then rereading and rereading it a few times after that. It's such a bittersweet series, from start to finish. Not everyone has a happy ending. Not everyone gets the closure that they want or deserve. Bacioli makes it all work. It's silly, it's ridiculous, but it knows what and how to play seriously. It's such an earnest creative vision, and carries the ideals and tone of Rossum's Universal Robot 
Robots, the granddaddy of every robot revolution story ever told, as pure and as distilled as anything else. HBO's remake of Westworld wishes it was this poignant. So here's the GoBots, the great licensed comic of this generation, and I stand by that. Two thumbs up. Now moving forward, we have League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Tempest Number no. 5, which I have to say that this was just a weird fucking issue. I don't even think I have the time to truly understand it yet. It's probably the most chaotic and insane issue of this series, which is saying something given that Harry Potter once shot out lightning from his dick, but it's completely scattered in the best way possible. Much like Promethea and Providence before it, the walls of reality and story have started to crumble completely around the characters, and it's total and utter anarchy. It's, well, visually insanely delightful. O'Neill is put through the paces far past anything that would be recommendable. He's going all out in both of the visual information per panel but also the look and feel of the issue. It's, in the loosest terms, a sorta homage to old horror comics but that would be underselling it. It's proud of itself and it should be. I still need to reread it to really get a groove of the narrative and the flow of this issue but by this point that kind of all seems secondary. I have no idea how the finale next month will wrap this all up but fingers crossed. In any case, the back up story continues this tale of the seven stars and it's hilarious as always just perfectly darkly comedic and knows when and what buttons to press i would read more of their adventures in a heartbeat so one thumb up one thumb middle and here's some quick shots heroes in crisis number seven boring and i dropped fantastic four i might pick it up again next month but i just did not have the care to read this issue so that's out of the question anyway let's move on to what i watched this week we only have one show this week which is doom patrol season one episode seven therapy patrol and really this show just doesn't know when to quit has any other comic book show ever had this much of a consistent set of hits when i saw the trailer for this episode last week i thought for sure this is gonna be a slow kind of mediocre but still fun episode and I was wrong. It's yet another episode that proves to me that this is probably the best adaptation this property could have ever had. I can't think of any other ways this show could have been improved. Let me put it this way. There's one thing I actually kind of hate about this episode and that thing is still really fucking great. What kind of magic is that? What works for this series has always been the character writing and that's what this episode is entirely about. Semi-vignette style, almost Rashomon-esque. It does a great job crafting all of these engaging segments for the main characters. Jane gets a little bit of the short drift but even her subplot goes places and they're all kind of entertaining as hell. It's not a single one that doesn't feel like a decisive short film that hones in on the character it wants. They've already all been built up so much by this point that this edges you toward the catharsis expertly but also knows exactly when to pull away. Cyborg's fears of identity and control, Larry and Rita's self-loathing, Jane's complete reluctance to create bonds and the neuroses that sort of builds up in her all get great play. The standout of this episode has to be Robot Man though. His subplot is so fucking disturbing and hard to watch as he breaks down over his daughter and the realization of her life without him. The dehumanization angle also comes up to the forefront and we get all these darkly comedic and tragic bits like when he tries to eat some Pringles in a manic insane fashion. And it goes to such depths too where he says that all he wants to do is cry and then screams in anguish that he can't even do that. It's perfection and bravo to everyone behind this 
episode for pulling this off and making it work. However, this also leads me to the one thing I really didn't like about it at all. Cause there's this amazingly funny twist that a rat who swore vengeance against Rob Man was fucking around with his hardware and driving him this crazy. Which wasn't obvious at all because the plot as a whole felt like something that was building up and as a result felt very natural. Especially the inhumanization outbursts. Making it that a rat really did it detracts from it a lot. It's hilarious and kind of awesome but it feels unnecessary and it degrades the episode a little bit. Still, it's very good in its own right but it did leave me a little disappointed in how it wrapped up. I can't wait for next week though. We're getting Danny the Street and maybe even Flex Mentolo. Overall, two thumbs up. And finally, we've hit the Shazam review. I just want to say first things first, it's really good. There's no getting around that. If that's all you want to know, then look in the description and then skip ahead to the timecode listed to listen to my general non-spoiler review. If you don't mind more detail and liberal spoilers, good and bad, then wait a bit, strap in, because we're going in right now, no holds barred. First things first, Shazam was just really surprising in how it presented itself. It's ostensibly a kids film, or at least has really tried to sell itself in that way. All these comparisons to Amblin films are big, which on reflection wasn't that bad a comparison. I mean, the kids in E.T. get guns pointed at them, and Tom Hanks has sex, and Shazam really does push the envelope with its PG-13 rating as far as it can in the same way. It's more or less a family film, with a light, fun, and very moral story for the littler kids, and then some more extreme gags and even darker scenes for older kids and adults. They say shit as much as they possibly could, and have a recurring gag about a strip club. It has something for everyone. Two things that really stood out to me are the extreme gags and the darker scenes. Like the movie opens up with a very stark scene about Savannah's origin and it's just so raw and honestly depressing. David F. Sandberg really was a good choice for this movie because given his horror movie background, he's able to set perfectly uneasy moods for a lot of the bits of this movie that are just like that opening. Hell, there's also this huge bit that is framed and shot exactly like a horror movie later on and it's incredibly unsettling to watch to say the least. It's very nerve wracking especially if you're looking for something well a bit more like the big red cheese but nope this opening has emotional abuse blood and a whole lot of cursing in fact the whole movie has a lot of that sometimes used for comedic effect but mostly to underscore the tension and drama of both Savannah as the outside antagonistic force, but also the subtextual emotional arcs of the characters. It's why I find it so laughable that people are using this movie as a bastion for how the DCEU is moving away from Snyder, because it's honestly doing the same thing he was attempting to do atmospherically, just a whole lot more entertainingly. I mean, in this movie alone, there is this insanely sorrowful scene where Billy has to confront the truth about his parents, and it's definitely treading along the same lines as any of the parental stuff from Man of Steel or Batman vs Superman, but it stops just short of being overwrought, being played for excellent pathos instead. It's genuinely engaging and kudos to Zachary Levy, Asher Angel, and David F. Sandberg and all involved because they hit the landing of this emotional core perfectly. Of course, none of this is meant to say that the movie isn't without its light or fun moments. Not at all. In fact, both aspects help to reaffirm each other. It's like night and day, complementary. Perhaps best personified through how Savannah and Billy contrast each other. There's 
there's this plot being in the movie where the wizard tests his candidates for champion with the seven sins. And in a way, Billy and Savannah fail this test. However, Savannah decides not to grow as a person. He withdraws from any sense connection and never reaches out to others, only focusing on his internal single-minded goal. Billy likewise has a singular goal, but doesn't shy away from building connections and bonds with others. They both sin a lot, but Billy eventually realizes that this is only a band-aid for what's really missing from his life, emotional tethers with other people. There's this wonderful beat that really sells this, where Savannah has just finished severing his last ties with people, and Mark Strong exudes in his body language and facial expressions this perfect aura of distraught and confused rage. It's self-defeating and self-destructive. That's what makes Billy worthy because he grows and lets go and has the capacity to let others into his heart. It's something he has to overcome by himself and he does. It's quite lovely. It helps that Asher Angel, Jack Dylan Grazer, and Zachary Levy balance off each other immaculately. Billy's connection to Freddy is the strongest out of anyone else in the cast and they needed each other for those moments to be as realized as they were. When their relationship starts to rise or break down, you feel it and that's awesome because they were great. This is also unfortunately the perfect segue into my issue with the movie. Before we get to the really nitpicky stuff, let's start off with the actual genuine problems I had. The first of which is that, well, Freddy is the only character of the Marvel family to get anything to do. The rest don't really have anything of note. They're pretty interchangeable, except for maybe Darla, but only because she's the focal point of several punchlines. It's a shame. It really is. And it lessens the impact of the finale, because when the other Thunder Kids get their powers and become the Shazamily, because that happens and it's a fantastic moment, it's hampered by the fact that you don't really get to know anything about them. They're caricatures, they're blank slates, and thankfully the Freddy stuff works because it helps you not to notice it, but it's still a missed opportunity for the film and a franchise that has a core theme of a family. Another thing is that, as I mentioned in what I read this week with Shazam number four, is that it's so amazingly, uneasingly obvious how much John's only made Mary 18 in his new series for synergy reasons and that she and Billy are not related. Not a mark in this movie, but it does reflect my opinions on John's and his works, and it's a a shame. My next two actual complaints are tied with the comic that this movie takes chief inspiration from, Curse of Shazam, the first of which has to do with Billy's character arc. Now before I've said that Billy has this real development and journey throughout the movie, and that's true, but it also feels like it comes a bit way too late. The actors and writers make it work, but it still feels like we spend way too much time on Billy not really growing as a person, or really what makes him a hero outside of generally being a decentish kid at heart. In Curse of Shazam, Billy's first fight with Black Adam happens in a crowded and public place, a mall, and one of Billy's first reactions is his concern that Black Adam is going to cause collateral damage and injure and harm people in the path of his destruction. It's a small one-panel beat, but it speaks volumes about Billy's character. The same exact scene happens in the movie, but Billy has no such moment. Throughout the scene, He's only concerned about getting away from Savannah, who takes Black Adam's place within the narrative. It just feels like a weird decision to not include a moment that would have added to the scene. It plays it pretty much just for laughs, and Billy is only concerned with just his escape. As a result, it just feels kind of empty without it. If you knew about it, and the movie in general can feel very lopsided to the Billy fucks around with his powers side. My only other Curse of Shazam level nitpick is that Tawny is cut out of the movie. I mean, he's there symbolically because Billy has a fondness for tigers in the movie. But nah, he doesn't show up either as an animal or as a talking tiger from another realm. So clearly this movie is a 0 out of 10. But honestly, that's kind of it. Not enough development or misused development. And even then, mostly understandable. It's still not bad. Not bad at all. It's not only surprising 
surprisingly faithful to Kirsch Shazam in every other respect, but also brings back the he can't say his name without changing element and has way too much fun with it. By the end of the movie, Billy has no superhero name. They use a different one every time it comes up. It's fantastic. It's one of the funniest running gags in a superhero movie I've ever seen. I swear, they should just go all out and call him Captain Marvel for the sequel. Just do it. I mean, just have lots of fun with it and don't take it seriously. I feel like that could honestly work. Overall, it was a fun, well-made, entertainingly acted, and really effective film about growing up, letting go, but never shutting or cutting yourself off from others. Not from life, not from family or friends, or whoever is in your life that you feel like calling either of those. If I had to think of the future, it's that the Monster Society plot they're setting up should be a kick. I hope there's less synergy and that they make better magic lands. But also, I feel like the Black Adam movie is a mistake, especially if they're going for the anti-hero view first. This movie perfectly sets up Black Adam as a threat, and I feel like he should be the villain. The Rock should play the villain, really. And I hope that it all works out. In any case, two thumbs up and a genuine out of 10 score of 8 out of 10. Anyway, if you hit the time code, you should have landed here for my general non-spoiler review, which is that Shazam has a few issues in terms of pacing and character developments, but it's still a very well-honed, emotionally fraught and driven story about characters, relationships, friendships, family, and never giving up. It's insanely, insanely entertaining, despite some of the flaws that are kind of readily apparent. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that anyone who goes out there and watches it enjoys it too, because I'm giving it two thumbs up and an 8 out of 10. Anyway, I guess that's it for reviews, and that means we can head on into listener questions. We have one this week from the amazing AkiCat on Twitter, and their question is, what is the strangest piece of merch that I own, and what is the oldest? Now, I assume that this doesn't include, like, toys, because I feel like that would be cheating. Toys are just kind of ubiquitous and they don't really count as merch until you get really older and then suddenly they do count as merch. Let's see, the oldest piece of merch that I own that really counts as merch like something that's tangential and that you only buy because you're a fan or that you end up with because they're giving away free swag. And I feel like I have one answer to both of these questions and that is a free promotional pin for Cross Badlands when it was originally coming out because there's a little story to that and it is kind of a doozy. Now Crossed to give some background for those of you who don't know, even though I mentioned it a couple of times before, also content warning, is a horror comic about rape zombies. Now, that's exactly what it is. Zombies who rape. And it is probably one of the most bottom the barrel, really trashily written comics ever. I'm not even joking about this. There are some great writers who even go into the cross the universe and write just utter dreck. Now there are some writers that have been able to go into the Cross franchise and write some great stuff, like Alan Moore or Cy Spurrier or Garth Ennis every now and then. But usually it's just garbage. And I'm giving you this background because I didn't know this when I got the pin. See, Crossed was usually just a bunch of minis and Badlands was the first ongoing series for the franchise, being an anthology with rotating writers and artists. But to promote the debut, Avatar Press sent swag like the pins to comic shops to give out the customers. The pin looked cool enough and I picked it up because why not? It was a skull with some red markings going down vertically and horizontally across the cheeks. It just popped. But something I heard that day stuck with me later on when I learned what Crossed actually was. See, when I got there, the comic shop owner was talking to some 12-year-olds who went to the middle school across the street from the shop, trying to get them to buy as much Crossed as they could carry, calling it the cooler version of The Walking Dead. So you can imagine why this memory burnt itself back into my mind when I finally started becoming more knowledgeable about Crossed. Because holy shit, those kids didn't buy any issues, but they could have been fucked up. The comic shop closed a few months later. I had to feel like people skills like that played a key role in it. So yeah, that would be the oldest 
and strangest piece of merch I own. It's not even the same one for that day even. I lost that a few months later. But I tracked down another one on eBay and I've had that ever since. Thank you AkiCat. I hope that answers your question satisfactorily. And well, it's still a funny story to me. It really is. And I just want to thank you for the question. And I want to thank everyone out there who's ever sent in a question or comment or topic because it means so much to me. It's amazing and I'm so grateful. I really am. And if anyone out there has their own, you can always contact me on Twitter at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. And I want to give a shout out to the cover artist for this show at D-O-T-E-M-C-E-E. Check them out. Give them a follow. They really deserve it. Anyway, last thing, I want to announce that I'm working on a commentary track for Ang Lee's superhero masterpiece, Hull, to be released for the one year anniversary of Unsourcewall, and I hope I'm able to finish it and get it out to you guys on time for that, so fingers crossed. I hope you have a great week, and see you next time.